Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. I can totally understand the, the ridiculousness of it, but alternatively, I don't want it to make it kind of define me and be the thing that people say, oh, you're that guy that went to that school. Your time at Student Radio, um, Monday morning, Music Madness by me. Max was born. <laughs> Do you remember your first ever show? Ultimately, that is where it all started for me in what, what led to Hospital Radio, which led to Street Smile, which led to my YouTube career. So in that little booth in Newcastle is where kind of everything started for me. Has being on YouTube ever affected your, your mental well-being, your mental health? The more that I have done YouTube, the more I realize how mentally draining it is on creators. And I'm finding myself checking YouTube Studio several times a day because it just gives that little hit of dopamine, that little hit, mm-hmm. that little hit, that little hit. But once suddenly you start to realize is that the numbers never, ever, ever end. Yes, people, welcome to the Football and Feelings podcast. Thank you for joining me. I'm Liam, your host as always. If you're new around here, then feel free to subscribe to the channel or pop over to the socials. Just search Football and Feelings. We're having a great time over there. Mainly me just doing stupid stuff that I think's funny, but no one else does. But nonetheless, thank you for joining me. Uh, let's crack on with this episode. I'm here with, with a lovely guest. He's a ever so charming chap. He's carving his place into the media realm and doing it his way. It's the ever so street smart Max Bosch. How are you, sir? Thank you very much. What an introduction. Thank you, Liam. Um, I'm very well. I'm happy as Larry, as good as we can be. I'm not sure whether this is also going to be a video version, but you can see just done some spring cleaning. So the marigolds are, are being held up right behind me and on the uh, on the taps. I'm feeling good. Um, clean mind, uh, clean apartment. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I can see you in a, in a pair of marigolds. It's a, it's a good look for you, I think. Oh yeah, I love a pair. I love a pair of marigolds. I mean, I'm I'm more of a traditionalist. I like a pink, I like a yellow, but I have swung for a pink every now and then. So uh, mm. hey, I, I don't. Yeah. I, I I'm I'm more of a yellow man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Same here. How have you been coping throughout lockdown? How's it going? Well, I mean, which lockdown, Lim? <laughs> let's let, <laughs> let's go. One, let's, two or three. let's do this one. <laughs> This one has been really challenging. It has been really, really challenging. I feel like in the first two lockdowns, I had to really come up with a lot of content and be really creative about how I was going to operate the channel in a completely new landscape. And I kind of got through the second lockdown and thought, you know what, I've done well, well done, Max, pat on the back. You've you've really kind of thought yeah, thought of ideas that are out of the box. And then mm-hmm. lockdown three came around and I continued to do so and I felt like I was making some great videos that I was really happy with, but it just kind of seemed ne- never ending. And now I'm slightly getting to a point where I'm just thinking I'm I'm so tired and burnt out from having to constantly come up with, with ideas that work within a lockdown sphere that aren't to do with Zoom or are kind of different from what we've seen that are so popular um mm-hmm. so that has been quite tricky but I, i've been i think that the the audience have been really really amazing and stuck with the the new content that i've been putting out recently so i'm very happy on that on that front yeah that, that's really interesting we'll, t- we'll touch on that later i really like how you've adapted this year to making content that you that you wouldn't probably otherwise make if you if, if circumstances were different um you're a chelsea fan let, let, let's go into that slightly how are you feeling at the moment new manager on board lampard kicked out um yeah how are you feeling look i think 
Football is such a fickle game. Like mm. football, like fans and kind of the media is so fickle. Like my my housemate is a Manchester United supporter and um, we have long chats about football. And like when they were number one, when they were leading the league, there was all sorts of like Michael Richards coming out. Like, yeah, I see Man United being his proper title contenders. So mm. I feel like just as a, just before I say anything, I feel like football is an incredibly fickle sport. And it's so it's the 48 hour news cycle just turned up to the extreme. <laughs> I was very upset to see Frank go. I really, really thought that he was the, the people's champion. If I'm honest, when he first came to the club, I thought he was way out of his depth. I thought depth in the, his first season, I thought he was going to be gone by January. Um, I was technically right, but just a year out. Um, and I think what he did with the the youth team was was brilliant. Like we've seen under him the emergence of five players who were all young English talent that are now pushing in the first team under Tuchel. I mean, Abraham, Gilmore, James, um, uh, Mount, like there are so many there that won't, will not only benefit Chelsea, but benefit um, England. So I think it's a shame to see Frank go, but his legacy is still there in a certain extent with some of the youth players that are coming through so well. Yeah. Uh, when the, when Lampard joined as a manager, I was as a, as an outsider to the Chelsea world, I, I was quite excited because it, it seemed like a real change of direction. Everyone was thinking, oh, so they're going to stop doing what they've been doing for the past 10, 15 years and they're going to go for a long term plan. Um, but, I mean, I, I was I was quite sad when that lasted 18 months. But um, yeah, you're right. He, he was out of his depth, unfortunately for him. And it was a shame. And, and luckily, it didn't tarnish his reputation as a player as well, as a legend. No, I think that's very important. Like it's very easy for him to have kind of come in and lost so many games and the fans mm. just not getting behind him. Um, although he was out of his depth, I think in the long term, to be able to get top four with those players of the transfer ban last season is a feat that I think is very often overlooked. The Premier League, as we're seeing this season, is the most volatile and just crazy league that to be able to get top four with those players in that circumstance coming just from Derby is an achievement that I think he should be incredibly proud of. Um, I'm not sure what else he's going to do, whether he's going to continue into the managerial career or he's going to do kind of take a little Gary Neville um, tour and just realise that, hey, it's probably better to sit on the sidelines and commentate. I don't know. But hopefully we it's not the end of Frank Lampard. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I've seen uh, you're taking part in a creators tournament at some point, um, five aside or seven aside. I, what, what has Max Fosh got in his locker? That's what I want to know. Hey, like, first of all, I, I have absolutely no idea what I've signed up for. Um, and uh, I'm just hoping that I, can, I don't completely disgrace myself. I think one thing that people probably assume when they hear me, like hear me or watch my my videos is that I'm maybe not particularly that sporty. Um, but sport was kind of my thing when I was growing up. So I do kind of slightly rate myself on the football pitch, which is a bit of a it's a bit of a kiss of death, I think. Um but I, I've got I'm a left footer, I'm left footed all the way. Um and so I can whip in across uh on my first touch. So I think that's what I bring to 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 an eleven aside team that not many players do. Oh, I love I love to see a left footer. So I feel like the the standard of left footers is is a lot higher than for some reason of a right footer. I don't know why that is or if that's a complete Yeah, they they kind of like yeah, yeah, they kind of like looked as like mythical beings. Yeah. But when you get one in your team, you keep it. I mean, yeah, uh, we got a Hakim Ziyech at Chelsea and a bit of a Marcus Alonso, so hopefully I'm a bit of an amalgamation of the two. <laughs> <laughs> you've uh you've spoken about your your time at harrow on, on quite a few podcasts that you've been on um we will dive into that slightly i'll try to avoid all the same questions that you normally get but sport like you said there sport was a big part of your time there right 
Yeah, massive. And I think that it was it's suddenly going up a level. So when I was at primary school, there were 24 boys in my year. So I was kind of automatically in the A team for football, <laughs> cricket, rugby. I mean, there wasn't really that much competition. But suddenly then going to a place like Harrow where there are 180 boys in a year, it was suddenly a much like uh, it was it was a much different environment. And you kind of had to, if you wanted to be in a team, you had to work a little bit harder. Um, so I was I, I remember I, I think I got to the B team, uh, like it was the highest position in my football career. But cricket is where I really kind of took on um, to, like took the took the like as much did as much as I possibly could. So my dad, I've said this on other podcasts, but my dad went to the school and he was a professional sportsman for a small period of his life before he retired at the age of 22 because it just wasn't his thing. But as a result, the name Fosh within the Harrow community to do with sport was very, very strong. So for example, as I would be talking to umpires like at a cricket match in the under 14s, they're like bowler's name, I'd say Fosh and the umpire would turn around and say, is your, is, is, is your father Matthew Fosh? So there was still an element of like, this legacy in the sporting world when I got to Harrow. Um, but I managed to kind of work my way to get to the first team. So I was in the first 11 for cricket. Uh, it was there for two years. And the just the facilities and the opportunities that we got at being such a, at being at a school like Harrow, which is, I was such in such a privileged position to be in, but we were playing at grounds that were just unbelievable. Um, and why I was very lucky as well to have played in the second oldest ever sporting fi- sporting cricket fixture, which is the Harrow versus Eton cricket match at Lords. Um, so the two kind of the big private schools in the UK play each other at Lords, and so I played there twice. Which it is, it was, it was the peak of any kind of a sporting career. The equivalent mm. of playing at Wembley for football, and I went on to university. And some people said, "Oh, you're going to continue cricket?" And I just said, "No, <laughs> I think <laughs> I very much." I've got to the top of where I could possibly get in this sport. I'm not going to turn professional. So I think I'll leave it at that. So my sporting career slightly tapered off as I went to university, but just the opportunities being able to play on the most incredible pitches at Harrow is something that I definitely took for granted when I was there. But subsequently is just, I look back on with such um, gratitude. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I wanted to talk about your legacy, your dad sort of left at Harrow. And do you think having his sort of prior reputation as a, as a great sportsman there, did that tarnish or did that maybe improve your experience having shoes to fill? It it tarnished it, if anything. And like this, it didn't come from my dad. Like he was never, mm. ever kind of saying to me, um, you should, you you need to play sport. But because of the way that Harrow is that it's so legacy based. Like if you're, if you had a parent that went to the school, the teachers know about it, your fellow pupils know about it. And especially when my dad was such a good sportsman, um, it, there was an element, I think there was a bit of a chip on my shoulder. I think I got there and I was in the B team and I was actually sometimes in the C team. And I didn't really, I wasn't that good, but I think in my last couple of years, I said to myself, I want to work really, really hard and play in this match at Lords because my grandfather also went to Harrow. He played in the match at Lords as well. So there were then the opportunity for three generations to play in this cricket match. And I thought I really, really need to, I really, really want to do this. So um, there was great facilities and they had an indoor nets. They had two indoor nets in the winter. And I would go down every single day after class and just bowl and bowl and bowl just so that I like had the opportunity to to work hard to get into a sporting team. And, and luckily I did. There were a few people who were saying, oh, he's only in the team because his dad was 
um, which when you're at school, you really take to heart. You really mm. kind of, um, you really think that maybe that is the reason. Um, but slowly I managed to take wickets and slightly prove myself within that team. So that was, that was quite a, a good moment. Well, a moment for me where I realized, oh, I'm, I am meant to be here. I'm good enough to, to play in this. Um, but it's because of a school at Harrow is sport is represents such a huge part of the community. So, and you, you wear different outfits, you wear a different blazer, you wear a different tie. So you're, you're not only set about like metaphorically, but physically everyone knows who is in the first 11 for cricket or football or rugby, or whatever it is. And, um, so yeah, there was a little bit of pressure, I think, but I think that was pressure that was put on myself rather than mm-hmm. by my parents or anybody else at the school. Yeah. Oh, some of what you're saying there is, I, I, I can't even pretend to relate to some of what, you, what you're talking about there, Max. Um, but, I, but I think no, for and, anyone... And, go on, sorry. And I, under, I, can, I, t- I totally understand that. And I, I always, I've, I've said this in previous podcasts, and I think that when it comes to being in a place like Harrow, I can, I, having now come out of it and kind of met a, a large group, I can totally understand the, the ridiculousness of it and, and can understand and accept and um, be grateful for the privilege that I had to be able to go to a place like that. Um, but alternatively, I don't want it to make it kind of define me and be the thing that people say, oh, you're that guy that went to that school. Because yes, I did. Um, and I don't, I don't want to shy away of that and hide that part of my life. But mm-hmm. I also can recognize how alien it is to 99.9% of the population. Yeah, you seem to handle that balance very well of of not of being proud of of your roots, but then also being self aware enough to know not everyone's had the same experiences. But for for anyone at school, it can be a difficult time because you're thrown in with all these all these new people around you, and you, everyone just wants to please people at school. You want to get accepted accepted by other people. But I imagine for an all boys boarding school, especially being surrounded by. I imagine a lot of a lot of boys trying to one up each other all the time. Um, was that a struggle at times, or was that something you look back on with fond memories? Yeah, I think I think it is. And, and although it's it's a school that is incredibly exclusive and very expe- the sp- the school fees are very high. Um, the you're still you're still being thrown into an environment that is is quite difficult for a thirteen year old boy. I mean, mm. you live in these boarding houses where there are seventy boys that live next to each other in corridors eight raging from 13 to 18 and so those you have to learn very quickly how to adapt to 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 live and survive within that environment because people are at different stages of life of puberty of growing up being a teenager and so for me initially because of the reputation that my dad had at the school i thought right what can i do i can be the best student i can be so for my first year i thought right i'm just going to work really hard and keep my head down now that made me into the guy who was proud of the homework that he'd done and really wanting to hand it in. And so as a result, I got a reputation between uh, uh, the rest of my classmates as being a goody goody two shades because I wanted to prove that I was good at academics. And I totally was. And as a result, I got a bit of stick from that. And there was a little bit of um, unsavory behavior towards me. But I and and as a result, I changed. Um, Mm. So there is an element of having to learn how to adapt into a certain environment. But that's just school in general. That's not just um, exclusive to Harrow. But the elements of living with each other 24-7 for three or four weeks at a time does add another element to that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and after you finished at Harrow, um, you had you had a little gap there, but then you headed off to university, going down an economics route. Um, but <laughs> at what point in in that journey did you decide that it wasn't the path that you wanted to take and that you needed to to change things up? I was uh, I was in a lecture about four or five months into university, and it was it was a finance lecture, and it was just maths. It was just maths on the board, 
And I'd already thought once before, why am I doing economics? Why is this a thing that I've been told to do? Because I did an internship that some family friend had got me and I sat at this kind of like desk and I thought, wow, is, is this it? Is this what everyone talks about and what everyone's obsessed with? Um, but it was when I was at university and I was doing a lecture and it was all maths and I thought, I don't want to do this at all. Also, I wanted to spend as much time as I could at university. So I realized, hold on, if I change course, I'll have to start my first year again. So now I'll have four years at university <laughs> and I can be doing something a little bit different. So I changed up because I realized quite quickly, I don't want to work in the city. I don't want to work in economics. This is, this is not what I want. Um, and so it was at university when I was opened up to a whole new world of different experiences and people that I thought, this is not what I want to do. And so I moved over to English literature, which was purely a bit of a stopgap, but it, it did the trick. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you've spoken about throwing yourself into into different things at university, like you went into student radio, which led to hospital radio, which is a, a path taken by many aspiring presenters. Uh, and during student uh, stu your time at student radio, um, Monday morning music madness by me, Max was born. Um, do you remember your first ever show? <laughs> Liam, what what <laughs> um, what uh, what incredible research you done there, my man? Um, what my first show? I remember. So the first time I ever went on the radio was because I was invited by a friend of mine who was doing another show, and she right. said, "Oh, my co-host has dropped out for today, so can you can you join?" And I was just like, "Yeah, of course." And so I walked into the studio. It was this little box with a few like soundproof stuff on the wall. Put the headphones on, and I was terrified. Like. It was like, okay, we're going live in three. And I was petrified. Anyway, after we went into a music break, I asked her, Hannah, how many people are listening? She said two. And I knew that one of those people was my mother. So <laughs> that's when I slightly kind of relaxed a little bit um, and got into it. But the Monday Morning Music Matters with me, Max, was purely an opportunity for me to get up in the morning on Monday, go in and have two hours in which I spoke to, like, I... It, in my mind, it was hundreds of people, but in actual fact, it was probably zero because most of the time the, um, the, the student radio wasn't broadcasting to everyone because the line was down or some description. So it was just an opportunity for me to just learn things and try things. And uh, off the, when I started, it was so 80s. It was very kind of like cringy. Um, how are you doing, guys? Welcome back to the radio station. I'm like old school um, radio vibes, but slowly over time, I grew and, and got a little bit better. Um, so yeah, I mean, that is ultimately, that is where it all started for me in what, what led to hospital radio, which led to street smart, which led to my YouTube career. So that, 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 that in that little booth in Newcastle is where kind of everything started for me. Mm -hmm. How much of a difference do you think that time on student radio made a difference to your, to your presenting skills? What, what differences did it make? I, I would like to say loads, but I don't have any like quantitative, I don't have any evidence yeah. to suggest that it would have been different. Like I have no idea how it would have been different if I just done, if I just started Street Smart without having done the three years of radio. So I think I definitely picked up some bad habits working in student radio in the sense of just copying what I'd seen or what I'd heard on the radio. And so I once did a demo for Heart, Heart Northeast, right? So immediately you can imagine um, the presenters they had on that station are very jolly. Like, right, welcome back to Hard Radio Northeast. Um, we got Little Mix on the way, and then I walk in and go, "Hello, nice to see you all. Welcome to the radio." So, but but after the, after that demo was done, the producer was like, "Wow, you've picked up some habits, haven't you?" And I subconsciously must have done by just kind of watching and then replicating. And um, so it's a good question. I don't know what the 
how it would be different if I hadn't done any of that radio stuff. But Mm -hmm. I'm sure that it probably wouldn't have been as as slick to start. I like to think that that three years of just kind of doing nothing was always did did benefit me in the long run. Mm-hmm. Yeah, in in all of your presenting, but but radio especially, how how do you or how did you tread the line between being a like a funny, self aware, and, and professional presenter, and not drifting into this chasm of just Alan Partridge parodying? Because that that's exactly where I'd go. It was, it, and it, it was a lot of Alan Partridge. It like non, n- like non um, intentional Alan Partridge. Mm. So. I, I think when I started, I was just excited to be on the air. I was excited to have, and that's when I moved over to Radio Tyneside. So I was at student radio for honestly about six months and I left there because there was no infrastructure there. There was no station manager running it at all. There was obviously like a dip in in uh, kind of people who were taking up radio. Um, so no one was really driving it. And then I heard about Radio Tyneside that was much more professional, that had people that could teach you and how to do live radio rather than pre-recorded stuff. So um I think that when I first started, I was just trying, I was just trying to learn as much as I could, but also try to be f- like come up with funny little segments. And that's when the first time I did Vox Pops, like um, I I did like Vox Pops on the street for my radio show um, for a number of months before I started Street Smart. So that got me used to like standing on the street with a microphone and asking people to chat. Um, and that's when that's when I was more comfortable when Streetsmart got involved. So I'm not sure what kind of presenter I was just trying to be when I started, just that I was just happy to be on the air and desperate for it to work out in some some capacity. Mm-hmm. If you went back to your time at university now, would you would you do anything different? I know that I would uh, join in more societies, probably student radio, actually. Absolutely nothing. I, w- I wouldn't change anything about it. I was really... I, I was really like proud of myself for, for when I first arrived, not sticking with the crowd that I went to school with. And, and if anything, kind of shunning away from them, because what happens mm-hmm. is, is that at Newcastle University anyway, there is a group of halls where a lot of the private school kids go. Um, and so it's very easy to stay within that bubble for the next three years and then you leave. And But when I got to university, I just wanted to do everything. I wanted to join the theatre society. I wanted to join the, 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 the student radio. I wanted to play sports. So... No, I, I really wouldn't change anything um, about the, my time at university. Maybe not to be so expectant for everything to work immediately, because I think what happens is when you first start a creative endeavor, whether that's writing or podcasting, you expect it to be an instant success because you spent so much time doing it. Um, and this is what I tell to people who are starting a YouTube channel, which is because you spend so much time editing something, you therefore expect other people to be invested in it as you are when in fact that they do not care you need to be you need to bring value to someone's life for that 5 minutes 50 minutes 30 seconds however long it is and that was something that i had to learn the hard way so by making content that no one was listening to that no one gave a shit about other than like my mates were like oh well done yeah see you're doing that that after a while i realized i was getting nowhere so i thought okay maybe i need to change up here and make stuff that will bring value to people in the long run, um, and that's a difficult. It's a difficult. It's a difficult lesson to learn um, in the creative industries that not everybody loves what you're making, or not everyone cares what you're making. But ultimately, is one that makes you a much better creator in the long run. Mm-hmm. Where did the idea uh, initially come from for Street Smart? It 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 was just. I didn't get into the the the, the Newcastle Student TV channel like they did. Right. They did one called Big Market Banter, 
um, where they had the same presenters and it was it did all right on Facebook, but it, it wasn't really that big. And I was watching it and I'm thinking, this is too long. It was like 10 minutes long. And the first two minutes was just the project were just the presenters introducing themselves and telling the audience mm-hmm. where they were. And I remember watching this thinking, I don't care. Like as, a, as an audience member, I, I want, I want the fun stuff as quick as possible. Mm-hmm. I want the funny, I want to be hit with the funny stuff immediately. So I applied to be a presenter and I can't remember whether they turned me down or I didn't get it or I applied or whatever, but I ended up not doing it for them. And so then I thought, well, hold on, they're doing us on the streets why didn't I just make my own? And I looked into the legalities of it and I saw that, well, if you're on the public property and on the street, anyone can film and you don't really, you don't need any permission. So I thought, well, hold on, why don't I just do it? Um, And so it's not like Street Smart with this big elaborate idea that I came up with that was different from everybody else. It was just, it was just taking an idea that has been around for as old as time, Mm -hmm. ever since cameras and microphones have been around, there's been presenters kind of fishing for funny answers from from people on nights out so it's not a new idea in the slightest but i just thought okay what can i do to this that will make it a little bit more personable a little bit more me and that was just purely by cutting it down to three minutes two minutes 30 maximum and stuffing in as much content as i possibly could into those two and a half minutes i mean the first time i filmed i filmed for about 90 minutes or in at two hours or so so cutting stuff was was difficult but i realized i had to do it if i wanted to make it as good as it possibly could be mm-hmm. yeah you you always come across as a as a very confident person but in uh, has that something that you've had to work on especially doing box pops um is, has that been difficult or anxiety inducing or have you always been able to just go in balls to the wall go for it it's fun enough it's gone the opposite way that you'd expect so when i started i was fearless i didn't care like i was and i think that's i think that is this kind of like assumed confidence that you get by going to a place like harrow like you get thrown into situations that you need to learn so quickly especially with your social skills so for example every new boy who joins the school at 13 has to sing a solo in front of the 70 boys in their house as kind of like a like an initiation in so like I was, I mean, I'm a massive show off and I like, I love singing. So for me, it was great. But can you imagine you've just started this new school and you've got all the big boys who are there and you have to sing in front of them. Like mm. there was loads of different things like that at Harrow that were done, which were terrifying at, at like when you were doing it, but in the long run really did help me in good stead. So when I first started with Street Smart, I didn't care. All I wanted was the content. Like I just went out, chatted to people. I thought, what's the worst that's going to, what's going to happen? I asked someone to chat to me. If they say no, they say no, that's fine. There's plenty more other people who I can talk to. But as I've made more and more street smart videos, I get more and more nervous about whether I'm going to get the content. It's not necessarily talking to people. I don't mind making a fool of myself on the street and someone just walking past me or someone telling me Mm -hmm. I'm an idiot or, or whatever, something a little bit stronger. Um, it's whether I'm going to get the content that I need. So if anything, more recently is when I've been the most anxious. Like I did a video uh, in which I played Jenga with Architect outside Islington Station. And that was that was only a couple of months ago. But I remember driving to Islington from my place in, in London and being really nervous, really anxious, butterflies in my stomach, which I previously had never had before. And I'm not sure whether that's because the channel has grown to a size where I now know there's an audience that's going to watch it or or something else i'm not sure but definitely the anxiety has increased as street smart has gone on 
Mm, that's interesting. I, I have to ask this. Um, why do you always cut the name of whatever people are trying to plug? Because it, 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 I always find it hilarious because I always trick myself into thinking he's not going to do it. He's not going to he's going to let them put their Instagram here and then then it goes. I don't I think I think I saw somebody else do it. I think I saw I mean, one of my great inspirations is Kasim G. Um, who was a YouTuber who was really big on YouTube back in like 2009. Like he was one of the first YouTubers who were alongside Smosh and, um, and Charlie is so cool. Like, and he did street interviews and I used to love watching these. And I think in one of his episodes, he cuts off their, them trying to promote themselves. And I thought it was really funny. And so I just put it in and then it just became a running joke. And I learned that putting running jokes like that into content makes kind of builds community amongst an audience so although it's a really easy gag and i now fish for it like people watch the watch the videos and now they're quite happy to have their instagram cut and i will actually say the words do you want to plug your instagram um and then edit that bit out very sneakily um but it's just it's just now become a running joke um i have unfortunately had in more recently i've done a i've done a series called private eye which was produced with another production company and there were some like celebs involved and there was a fee paid. And there was a lot of back when I was editing it, I try, I wanted so badly to, <laughs> to still cut them. And they said, Max, you just can't do it. Like, please, please do not do it. So it slightly ruined the aesthetic. So I, there are some videos on the channel where I do let people plug things. But if I've got anything to do with it, nobody plugs their channel, not even me. <laughs> love to see it you've you've always been very open and, and honest about the fact that you want to you want to transition into the mainstream or, or linear media um ha, but has your your youtube success has that ever sort of distracted your interest away from that or will it always remain uh, at all to to exhibit your your presenting skills initially it very much was a tool for me to present my presenting skills um and the reason I put them on YouTube is so that I could send them to agents when I left university. So that was the only reason they were on YouTube. Um, but the more that I have done YouTube, the more I realize how mentally draining it is on creators. And we see creators burning out all the time. And I, like, I mean, look, YouTube's 10 years old, really, in its current form. And we, I can only really think of three or four YouTubers that have spanned that distance as creators that whole time. KSI, PewDiePie, Jenna Marbles, Philip DeFranco, and all of those guys have taken long breaks of at least a year at some point within their career. So the reason why I'm using it as a tool to exhibit what I can do is because I understand that YouTube isn't forever. Um, inversely, inversely, I'm understanding how powerful YouTube is becoming by the day in comparison to mainstream media. Like I had a meeting with a production company who made Shipwrecked, the E4 um, show, and they had had their figures from the night before come in. And the figures for their show on E4, nine o'clock prime time for one of their biggest shows was peaked at 300,000 viewers for the show, right? So if you, if you let's say there's 20 episodes in the series, that's 6 million views across the whole series. Now, that is a show that you need to send a cast, a crew to a private island, rig the place, insurance, all of the costs associated with that. And your return on your investment for one series a year is 6 million views. Like small creators in the UK or relatively small creators in the UK are getting 6 million views a year on their YouTube channel from their bedrooms. So that's when I realized, hold on, the, the advertising spend that these advertisers can be putting on, on, on TV is going to be huge. And the cost involved to something like a show like Shipwrecked is massive. 
and I can get that in a year by myself from my room after maybe three years work. That was a real wake up point for me to thinking, okay, TV isn't the be all and end all. Um, but it is something that you, I want to try and break into pro, from a longevity point of view. Yeah, yeah. And we have seen YouTubers either sort of flirting with the mainstream or, or some some becoming immersed in it, but it is still quite rare because um, I think that, they, mm. I, I mean, I've heard you speak about this before. They're, they're very different skill sets. But do you think, mm. um, do you think presenters now, uh, do you think they are chosen because of the following they can bring to a show? It's almost like a pre-prepared audience to, to bolster views. This is what, that's a really interesting question. And I think, I don't think it, I personally don't think it works. I don't think an online audience, unless, unless the creator has got a serious fan base, like mm. the Sidemen possibly, but there are very few creators that can make that jump over from getting your online community to come and join you in the mainstream space. I mean, KSI has done it incredibly well. Joe Sugg is someone who I think has done it incredibly well. And these, these are two guys that I looked up, look up to in a big, big way because it's something that I hope to emulate. The reason why I think that they're not that many, they're not, they're not more, pe more people doing it is because, as I said, the skill sets are so different. YouTubers are so used to being produced, editing, directing themselves and just themselves. Whereas TV you are being produced up to the eyeballs. You're not in charge of the edit. You've got a director in your ear. You've got an auto cue in front of you. So it's, to it's two totally different things. Um, and so I'm hoping to start to bridge the gap between a creator that has an online following, but also has the necessary skill set for the mainstream media. Um, I see some more other creators. I mean, Will Any is somebody who I've been watching who's been slowly trying to move into more, actually not necessarily mainstream media, but more branded content so mm. we're seeing now the foot asylums and the jd sports are coming up with their own um online content i think that's where it's going to go because the creator still makes a good amount of money there's not as much pressure on them for the video to perform um but they can still they can still like boost their profile not just in an online space but kind of a a, a mainstream space so i think that's where it's going to go i don't I, I don't foresee youtubers taking over kind of daytime tv F f that soon if anything they'll be taking over or they are music and tv and act the acting world if they want mm -hmm. to like Troy Sivan, Shawn Mendes, Justin Bieber we forget was on YouTube all of these guys have gone into the mainstream from from that side of thing and if they're good enough they kind of get forgotten forgotten that they're YouTubers like I forgot that Troy Sivan was a YouTuber until quite recently because he's done so well in the music world um but I digress I think I would love to do it but and I just don't think there are that many YouTubers that are doing it right now Mm -hmm. Yeah, I don't think we'll be seeing the e-boys hosting loose women uh, anytime soon. No. <laughs> <laughs> um, we're on the YouTube space, uh, a lot of people speak about this, but I, I wanted to ask, has being on YouTube ever affected your, your mental well-being, your mental health? Because a lot of people get sucked into the analytics of it, understandably, because um, it's a very difficult thing to try and process. You've got all these people watching you and you, you don't want to care, but then you, to a certain extent, you have to care. Otherwise, you know, you, your career could change. YouTube is a, is a platform in which you are so objectively and quantitatively ranked compared to every other person in your industry so mm -hmm. there is no hiding your position and your standing within an industry which i think is is really detrimental for the people who are part of that industry i mean i very quickly after i started youtube i put a, i invested a lot of the money i made on youtube in therapy 
and going to therapy because I realized that for it to be a long-term investment, you need, I need to just check back in with myself and to try and subdue those urges or feelings that I know are toxic or unhealthy. One of those is checking your sub count daily, is checking your views daily. Mm. And when things aren't going so well, it's quite easy to do. It's quite easy just to kind of forget about it because it's the, the reward isn't there. Like if you check Social Blade, the reward isn't there when you're not really growing that fast and no one's watching the vids. But at the moment for me, I'm going through a huge purple patch and things are going great. And I've had a three, three or four videos that have hit the algorithm and subs are increasing a thousand a day and everything's hunky dory. And I'm finding myself checking YouTube Studio several times a day because it just gives that little hit of dopamine, that little hit, mm -hmm. that little hit, that little hit. But once suddenly you start to realize is that the numbers never, ever, ever end. And that's what I've spoken to various creators about in the, in the industry. It's like when you start YouTube, you think, right, when I hit 10,000 subscribers, that's when I'm going to be happy because I feel like I've made it. Once you hit it, no, 100,000. I'll, I'll, I'll do be 100,000 when I'm happy. And it, it never stops. 100,000, 200, a million, five, 10 million. You are always pushing for that next bit because you always think, well, once I get there, that's when I'll be happy. That's when I will have proved myself as a success on this platform. And that's when I can stop. So it, it, mental, I, YouTube and mental health is just, just they, are, they have a relationship that they, it's the dance of the devil, those two together. Um, and it's, I, I try, I, and I use the word try as the operative words to try and be as grand as I possibly can be when you've got subs and views coming out your ass and that is linked to your money that month, then it's very difficult to take a step back and think, okay, this is all going to go down the next month. It's all going to, it's all going to go back to 2000 subs a month rather than 40,000. Um, and so in those darker months in those lower months, when you still think you're making good content, that's when you need to kind of remember, hold on, as long as I'm making the good content, that's the most important thing. I was given a piece of advice by Zach Alsop, who him and I have become really, really close. It's not only just in YouTube, but just as friends as well, because we live quite close to each other and Jamie as well, both Zach and Jay. And Zach said, Zach always says like, once you post the video, it's out of your control. Like it, it you shouldn't care what happens once you prick, uh, click publish because ultimately it's got nothing to do with you how that video does mm. um and he i'm sure he wouldn't mind me talking about this but he does a, he has a lot of processes in place to help him he journals and he meditates a lot and he um does the wim hof effect that all to do things to ground him and those are definitely things that i need to do more of but when you're in the moment it's all exciting it's mm -hmm. it's quite hard to remember that yeah, it's very hard to take yourself out of that that emotion and like stop getting sort of attached to these things, like the numbers, like you said. Has has that something that that therapy's helped you with? Not to go into too many details, but how has how how has that sort of shifted your mindset? It's interesting. The therapy has more looked at the reason why I am chasing that success, and that mm. comes into much deeper kind of stuff from childhood and, and things like that. So. It's not necessarily, okay, you're seeing the numbers. How are we going to react to those numbers? It's why inherently am I so obsessed with those numbers? Um, so it has helped. It has definitely helped. Um, it's not to say that there haven't been wobbles at all. Um, and there have been times when I've had to try and step back and, and like remember that, okay, 
it's okay. Like it's okay if you don't upload this week, but then also having that motivation to keep going. Um, goals as well is something that's really tricky. Um, I had a goal for like 2019, I think it was to upload every week, every Sunday, there was an upload 52 videos in 52 weeks. And I did it and I completed it, but I wasn't happy because I hadn't got as many subs as I'd potentially hoped I'd get. And so going into therapies, looking at stuff like that is something that I've been working on. Um, so, so yeah, it, it, I mean, I think it's incredibly important to, for, for creators to look after their mental health because it's so easy. Like we're seeing with creators like Jake Paul and Logan Paul, who on YouTube, especially with their kind of content and the kind of content I'm going into now, which is more sensationalist content, you need to set your hair on fire metaphorically more and more mm. times to get a bigger reaction. And ultimately that all comes crashing down. Um, mm. So having somebody who's removed from that scenario is always is always important yeah yeah man. I, I i fucking love therapy and I've, i think everyone should try it it takes such a weight off your shoulders when you try it. and you, you should, sometimes you don't realize how you feel about something until you say it out loud um to someone that has that sort of has no internal interest in in your life to a certain extent um yeah i love it i, th I think everyone should try it and I, I don't think it should be mandatory but you know in the same way that we go to a doctor when you're physically sick um i think that should be more accessible to a lot of people yeah i mean I, again i came i've had a very privileged upbringing which has included going to therapy from a young age and so therapy for me has not been stigmatized really at all my parents my parents separated when i was younger and so when i was nine years old i was i was in therapy and just talking those feelings out my sister is a psychotherapist my sister is a therapist so in my family therapy is is almost is incredibly normalized which which I often take for granted as to be in such a lucky situation, especially being a man. Um, and, and so I just, I just hope that more people just kind of put, and it doesn't, it doesn't mean spending lots of money on a therapist. There are various things that you can do to improve your mental health. Um, but again, I was just very lucky to have a family that supported your mental health and therapy from a very early age. Mm -hmm. that's great to see that that really is um talking about some of the other content um or just sort of around that sort of realm we've seen you getting involved with zach and jay quite quite famously and and you signed with a, with a talent agent serendipitously that you you met whilst you were at a choir session or when you joined a choir um so it seems like you've really created your own luck do you do you believe in that or do you do you think luck isn't doesn't really come into it I t I've been so lucky. I have been so, so, so lucky, which is why I often feel a bit awkward when, when people ask me, what do I do to grow? Or what, what can I do um, to, 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 to get to become a full-time YouTuber? Because I have had moments in my life that have been so lucky, like walking past Zach on the street, not only that, but then messaging him and then him messaging me the next morning saying, can you film for us today? That opened that door. Um, joining that choir and having absolutely no um kind of assumptions about it and then someone in that choir was a really big talent agent so i think no i definitely do think you create your own luck it's the idea that you need to buy a lottery ticket um mm. now if we go back to like the maximus bucharest video which is the thing that kind of started me off so i, I did a video for those who kind of don't know i did a video in which I gate crashed London Fashion Week as a fake model. And we, we posted and I got invited to parties and to shows. And it was all it was all very silly. And we posted this video and the video went megaly viral to the tune of like 25 million views. And so as a result, I got like 50,000, 100,000 people coming over to my channel overnight. Now, 
I think the difference is that in my situation, I had 40 videos of street smarts that I'd filmed and that had got 10 views, 15 views that were going, were doing nothing, but they were there for people to watch. And so that suddenly hooks that audience in because we see a lot of the time, big view counts or big sub counts being directed to small channels by bigger creators and there not being anything there for the audience to latch onto. And then those subscribers should become dead subscribers. Um, so you need to, I think I, I got lucky in the sense that that happened, but I had put in the work for it to, 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 to really pay off. So I have been very lucky, but I don't want the, the word luck to kind of overshadow the amount of work that went in for that luck to take hold, if that makes sense. So you've got to buy a ticket for the, you've got to buy a ticket for the lottery to, to win, um, just like as a creator, you've got to be constantly putting out content in the likelihood that something does, an opportunity does come along and you can show that you are ready for that opportunity. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think you've shown that throughout your content that you're adaptable and that you're proactive. Um, like you seem to have adapted really well in recent times um, throughout these various lockdowns, like I said at the start, not being able to make the sort of content that maybe you would have otherwise. Um, and you've taken up some colossal... Uh, investigative tasks let, let's call them <laughs> such as finding the woman in the stock photo uh trying to find a winner of takeshi's castle um, no winners this time and putting <laughs> to bed the uk wide this is my favorite one the uk wide debate of the whereabouts of the frosties kid i can't believe that video what happened to that guy what i know me, me too i when i was when i was making that a video i was like this is going to bang um mm. But it just, it, it, nothing happened. I mean, I was really happy with the, with the video, how it turned out. And Sven was such a nice guy. Um, but yeah, it's be, that was one of those videos that I thought, oh, here we go. Strap in, Max, this is a big one. <laughs> but then it just didn't really go anywhere. What, what's, when, what's been your most enjoyable video recently? I loved, I really, really enjoyed the making the roundabout video. Um, mm. So for those, I, I recently bought my own roundabout. I, I paid a parish council 500 quids um, to, 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 to buy it. Well, not buy, sponsor a roundabout, which basically let them put a, let me put a plaque in there with, with my name on it. But that was a, uh, a video that I really enjoyed purely because it was an experience and an example of how doing something, you never know what's going to happen, where it's going to lead. So initially the plan was just to buy a roundabout open it and that was done but then i found out when i got there on the day that the roundabout itself was right next door to this celebrity that i if i'm honest i didn't know of um and that added a whole new element to the story so i really enjoyed making that one because it show showcased that hey if you if you try new things you never know what's going to happen and it was such a it was such a great ending to the video because it was so unexpected Mm -hmm. Yeah, I've really enjoyed the video with the printed CV on top of the car outside of Radio 1, just because, it again, it highlighted how proactive you are in chasing these things. And it certainly caused quite a stir on Twitter. Oh, um, I'd say it has, Liam. It has. It has. Yeah. It was the first, that was the first time. So the, the, the video with the CV on the car, like, I, put, I printed my CV, put it on my car and parked it outside of Radio 1, um, which was my dream job. Now... I like to say that this is not a new idea. People say, oh, how'd you come up with the idea? This is not a new, I, I nicked the idea from a guy did it in 2008 when the, when the financial crash happened. He bought a billboard for 500 pounds mm. and just wrote hiresam.com and he got, he got loads of jobs and it got some press. So I thought it's been long enough time for me to kind of redo that. Anyway, so I, so I did this video and printed my CV on the top of the car and it did, 
in, in the picture I posted on Twitter, it did say that I went to Harrow School. Um, and I've never, I, ne- I don't really use Twitter at all. So I'd never really experienced the kind of the vicious side of Twitter. Um, and I have to say it, it shocked me. Like it really did hit me. Um, and there was a lot of kind of conversations that I was having with my family and friends about it. Um, because it, it hurt. Like people were saying, this is just a guy who's just using his privilege to get what he wants. Um, and I, I didn't, I didn't respond to any of it because it's, it's, it wasn't really my place to do so. Um, but it was an experience in which I, I learned a lot from, from that. And I, as long as I was, I was thinking, well, look, I, I know in myself that I've worked hard to get where I am today. And that's the most important thing. Um, but yeah, it did slightly cause a, a small class <laughs> war on Twitter. <laughs> yeah, Twitter's um Twitter's a dangerous place for for things like that. If people have an opinion, they just they can't let it go. It's like it's like if they went, let's say they went clothes shopping and they saw something that they they didn't like, instead of just walking past it, they'd pick it up, they'd they'd find the designer of the clothes, then they'd go to the manager and they'd have to tell them their opinion. But um, it's a shame that that affected you and that you know maybe you wasn't weren't able to shake that off the sort of reputation that that precedes you with with the harrow education i think i think the reason why it upset me was because i have tried really hard to to acknowledge the position that i have been in i've mm. spoken on many podcasts and uh, and i've 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 been very vocal about how lucky i was to go to a place like that and it felt like these are people who who don't know any of this and they don't know me. And so I can totally understand, although it's difficult to hear, I can understand where that, that was coming from. Um, because I myself really dislike when I see people who are from privileged backgrounds getting things that they, I don't think they deserve. So I totally understand what the, what the, um, the allegation that was levied against me, but it's, it was difficult for me to hear because I felt like I had done a lot that that combated that or explained my situation best. So I think that's why it hurt. Um, but a, a couple of days later, I was all, I was all fine again. Uh, and luckily the video, the video turned out great and has been something that has done well. So I think the last laugh's on me. Has that, has that led anywhere? Um, it hasn't, it hasn't. Like I spoke to, I, I said in the video, I spoke to the head of Radio 1, Alan Hayden-Jones. Mm-hmm. He was very, very nice about it. He said, look, really well done really rate it um i hear that there was some whispers within the bbc that weren't so happy about it um but that's the extent of what i know but alad said look um i uh i am thinking of you you're in my head if something does come up i'll let you know so it's more of a we'll be in touch kind of thing which is i don't know i don't know whether that's a positive thing or that's just a very polite way of saying okay you've had your fun you've had your five minutes now piss off so it's it's going to be a bit of a wait and see moment to see whether they do kind of back like take me up on my offer and they do use me in some capacity mm-hmm. well you put yourself on the on, on their radar what else can you do yeah right? exactly I, I can't i can't do much more I can't mm-hmm. do much more. Absolutely. As well as those things that, that you've already done, like we've spoken about, um, stand-up comedy, something that you've you've tried a few times, I believe, and you have further aspirations to do so. Is that still something that is uh, firmly on your radar? Totally. It's the next thing that I really want to go into. I, I, we're seeing a lot of creators venturing into different areas of mm. creation or entertainment. I mean, podcasting is something that's become incredibly popular with after Jackmate and Stevie have done so well with with Happy Hour. So um I thought, well hold on, we've seen we've 
I've got this audience online. How can I, I don't want to sell merch. I feel like people have got too many t-shirts and too many jumpers. Um, what can I do? And I've always had aspirations of performing. And so the stand-up is just another outlet for me to just try something new. I never know. I could be absolutely terrible at it. Um, but I, I just want to kind of start and, and do as much of it as I can. I've got a show ready that's about an hour long that is similar to my YouTube videos so that people who come don't feel cheated from the fact that I, it's nothing like what they, what they expect or what they see online. So I've got a video, sorry, I've got a, um, a one hour planned. I was going to go, going to go up to the Edinburgh Fringe Festival with it. I'm going to tour around the UK with it with different universities. So hopefully, well, not hopefully, definitely when COVID is over, there is going to be a tour of some description of my stand up show. So wherever you are in the UK, if there's a major city nearby, you can guarantee that I will most likely be there. Great stuff. You really don't do things in halves, do you? I can see you being happy no. to flyer around. You're going to be doing all your own flyering around Edinburgh. Oh, all the own flyering. Yeah, of course. I'll be there. I'll be standing on the mile as much as I can, speaking to as many different people as possible. Um, because you never know. You never know who you're going to speak to and who's mm -hmm. going to watch your show. So, um, and also just I hope I think people will enjoy it. So yeah, I'll be flying on the mile and trying to get as many people through the doors as I possibly can. Mm -hmm. great stuff what is it about uh edinburgh fringe festival that is that why why is it so vital for comedians like i've never been but i know there are just a ton of shows on um but yeah why is it such a staple do you think i think the legacy of it every single comedian and this is not this is not an exaggeration every single comedian that you have ever watched on telly has been to the Edinburgh Fringe Festival. And I think it's because it's the, it's the, it's an experience in which you really cut your teeth as a comedian. It's how, where you really get better because you've got 30 days, you've got a month in which you're performing every single day to different people at different times. Some of whom will like you, some of whom won't like you. So, and then you're, you're just surrounded by other comedians. So the collaborative element there is huge. Um, the opportunity to perform to huge numbers of people in a short period of time to get better is is mental. So it's just become it's just become synonymous with stand up and just not just stand up but with art and theatre. Um, and it's that kind of stab and badge uh, like badge of honour as a performer. And one of the reasons why I want to do it is because if I have a successful time at the Edinburgh Fringe and I win, uh, let's say I win an award, or I get nominated for an award, or I even just sell out my shows. That is a badge of honor that a lot of people who maybe, let's say, aren't in the YouTube sphere will understand. So they won't understand what 350,000 subscribers means, but they will understand what a sellout show at Edinburgh Fringe means. So having both of those to my arsenal means I'm more appealing to a wider, wider range of people. Um, so it's, it's not only something that I just really want to do and something I've always wanted to do for, for a long, long time. It's just a bit of future-proofing as well. So I'm almost kind of, uh, like un unbreakable in sense of oh yeah but you haven't done this but all I have I've, I've I've covered that base as well so it's trying to make me as round as rounded as an entertainer as I possibly can be mm -hmm. yeah well you yeah like you said there a very rounded pre uh, present uh, fuck Jesus Christ entertainer um would you rather become a master of one of those things or would you rather be a jack of these many interlinking trades it's a great question liam um i think i would i would like to be a master and i think the the way that you become and that that mastering would be presenting um i i love the idea of stability as well and i think that that's what you get with presenting more mm -hmm. than comedy comedy speaking now to more comedians um as i've done it more often 
comedy is a brutal, brutal career. Um, and even if you might be a Peter Kay or a Michael McIntyre, someone who is universally thought of as very, very funny, there will be shows in which you just die on your feet, no matter how much you have performed. But I think there are elements of comedy that are so intertwined and important in presenting. So I would love to be a master of presenting, but I think to get there, I need to do as I need to dabble in as many different trades as possible. Mm-hmm. I'll certainly be at one of your stand-up shows. Maybe not the free, but I'll, I'll be at one of them. Liam, where are you based, Liam? Uh, in Essex, Frinton on Sea, near Colchester. Okay, we're okay. Well, we're we're planning on. I mean, Norwich is a little bit far away. You can come to a London Lon- show. Yeah, I'll London see. would be better. Yeah, I'll be there. Come to a London show. Yeah, yeah. I'm not not going to Norwich. Um, nah. <laughs> um, okay, Max. We have covered everything that that I wanted to really, but I would like to end on some sort of quick fire questions. I call them long ball questions because uh, you know football. Nice. Um, football. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> uh, yeah, if you're ready for those, we'll round it off with these four questions. Let's go. Here. Finish up with some long ball questions. Great stuff. What are you most grateful for right now? My family. And my health, my, my family's health. That's what I'm most grateful for right now. Great stuff. Yeah, I think this year has highlighted that for a lot of people, the year that we've had. Um, what makes you anxious? A video's performance. Mm. Yeah, there we go. Uh, what stops you from feeling anxious? Uh, not much. Um, <laughs> um, <laughs> getting out, go for a walk, spending time with my friends. Love to see it. And final question of the episode, Max. What about yourself are you most proud of? To have built a community of 350,000 people from my hard work, through, through not, not through um, somebody giving it to me on a silver plate. Um, that's what I'm most proud of. Great stuff. Max, thank you very much for joining me on the Football and Feelings podcast. I hope you've enjoyed it as much as I have. Liam, I have made some great questions in there, mate. Absolutely loved it. So thank, thank you so you. much. I really enjoyed doing doing the research on this one. It was basically just listening to your to your dulcet tones for hours on end. <laughs> oh, that is that is very, very kind. <laughs> uh, thank you again, Max. And to the listener, thank you for joining me. If you enjoyed this episode, then maybe head over to iTunes, leave a five-star rating. That would really help do me it. grow the show. Yes, like Go on, said, guys. doing, just do it. Anyway, thank you very much. Um, I'll see you next time. Cheers. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com.